Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and, and, and bent ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down the stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be planted in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we build the wall and, all, and the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashtodites heard that the repairing of the uh, uh, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the bridges were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as, as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill and kill them and stop the work. At the time, the Jews who lived in here came from all directions and said to us, you must return to us. So in the lowest part of the space behind the wall, in, other, in, in, in open places, I, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, uh, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles to the, and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Jerusalem who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side and while he, uh, at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at, at, the, at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a God, there may be a God for us uh, by night and, and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the God who followed me, none of us took, out, took off our clothes and kept his weapon at his right hand. This is God's word. Let us pray. 
Our dear Heavenly Father, what a joy it is indeed to hear your word. We pray that our hearts will be convinced that this is your word that is breathed out by you and is profitable for our souls, for you to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness. May we respond with a heart of humility as we hear your word. And may you speak to us clearly, O God. Give me clarity of speech and clarity of thought as I declare your word this morning. May you be praised and glorified as you draw your people to yourself. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. As, as, as I spoke about uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, we, we see the people coming together and building the, the walls. And, 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 and we mentioned last week that they are building ultimately for the glory of God because they are concerned with the glory of God. But oftentimes, whenever we busy ourselves with the work of God, there is always opposition. There's always opposition to the work of God. I mean, it is clear that we were praying for Yemen, right? There's a work of God that is taking place where the gospel is spreading among the, the Yemen people. But we also see a clear opposition. The Christians are being persecuted. The Christians are afraid. They are being dragged. They are being killed for their faith. There's an opposition to the work that God is doing there. The story of Nehemiah here shows us that whenever you try anything significant for the Lord, you will face strong opposition. Satan never bothers with half-hearted people uh, who are content with a, a, a whole-harm spiritual uh, uh, existence. But if you come, if you, if you, if you are on fire and, and, and you, 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 you develop a heart for Christ, you must look out. The, the name Satan means adversary. He is committed to opposing God and his people, especially when they are zealous about exalting the name of God, when they are zealous about the glory of God. And this is true on a personal level. As long as you live with, with one foot in the world, living according to the world's values and the world's goals, Satan won't trouble you. You can go to church and even pray and read your Bible, and he won't mind. He, he won't mind. But the minute you wake up, the minute you wake up from your spiritual lethargy, you shake off the worldly mindset that you have and commit yourself to radically obeying Christ, radically following Christ, you will encounter spiritual opposition. Nehemiah chapter 4 stands to show us that the enemy is committed to opposing the work of God among God's people. We, we, we need to be ready for such opposition and know how to respond to it. What we see in summary in Nehemiah chapter 4 is, when the, is that when the enemy opposes us, he surely will, will uh, uh, when he opposes us, we, we, we should respond with prayer, with uh, a work, vigilance, and focus on the Lord. If we only had chapter 3 of Nehemiah, we would get the impression that the work of the wall went without a hiccup. 
so so and so built and uh, built this gate and and these people build the wall to this point and and next to them were were these people and next to them were these people and, and so the work went further if we just had chapter three we would think oh things went well everything went well they built and and it was uh, they lived happily ever after it sounds as if there is no problems here but that was not the case right as you read, as you read on, especially chapter four to chapter six, you 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 you, you come to see you, that that some problems they had some problems that they had to overcome in the process of rebuilding the wall. There's a cycle of uh, of setback and advance in in, in in chapter three to chapter six. There's the, the people are advancing in the building, then there's a setback of opposition, there's a setback of a, a problem that arises, and, and so on and so forth. It, it is not a smooth process that is taking place here. We see that the problems that they experienced were externally, um, as, especially with Sanbala Tobiah here, and we see that the problems were internally as well, as we will notice in chapter 5. The circle shows that the Christian life is a conflict. There will always be opposition. The enemy will try to get you sidetracked or to, to give up completely. Even though it was God's will for, for the world to be rebuilt, he did not remove the opposition. And even though it is God's will for you to grow strong in faith and to labor to advance his kingdom, God does not remove the opposition. If you respond properly, the opposition will drive you to a greater dependence on the Lord and to a greater determination to do what he has, he, he has called you to do. If you yield to the opposition, you will quit the race in discouragement or settle for a mediocre Christian existence. So the question then is, how do we respond to opposition? How do we respond to opposition in a Christian way? I want us to see here two lessons to, to bear in mind when responding to oppositions. Two lessons to, to bear in mind when responding to opposition. Listen carefully because um, uh, the, 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 the lessons are a bit long. It's not just one, two words or three words. First of all, the first lesson is if you know Jesus Christ and attempt to accomplish anything for him, the enemy will oppose you. If you know Jesus Christ and attempt to accomplish anything for him, the enemy will oppose you. Our text here reveals six types of oppositions that take place. First of all, the anger of others against you. We are told about Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, who became furious and angry. We see that in verse 1 and verse 7. That the Hebrew word um, that is used here, that, that he became greatly enraged. He, he was burning mad. A secure and independent Jerusalem would threaten his hold on the area and undermine his control of the trade route through the region. Thus, it was hurting his economy. 
So for the, for the time being, he, he dropped his differences with the Ammonites to the east, the Arabs to the south, and the Philistines to the west. In anger over what Nehemiah was doing, they all came together, threatening to stop the work by violence if necessary. This new work of God in Jerusalem threatened their lifestyle, and they got angry. You see, Satan oftentimes uses anger of others to try to crush the newfound joy and zeal of a new believer. Personally, I have seen many young people come to Christ from families that are torn apart uh, by sin. And when they come to Christ, instead of, uh, you, you expect that when they come and announce to their families that I have found Christ, that the families would celebrate, but instead of celebrating, they are opposed. They are hated and despised. That they become disowned from the family. One young man, I would not mention his name, and when, when I was pastoring in, in Nilstrom, um, came to Christ. And um, after a few weeks, I think um, it was eight weeks, he comes to me after church and tells me the problem that he's having at home. And when you look at his home, his brother is a criminal. And uh, to actually two of his brothers are criminals, and it is known in the community that they are criminals. They are sometimes beaten by the community. And he, on the other hand, comes to Christ and starts to live for Christ and is joyful. But he comes and says, at home they are not happy about my faith. And we, 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 we take him home and we want to talk to them and say, you know, he's with us and we are taking care of him. Don't worry about him. We are not teaching him anything that is um, ridiculous and that it will, will endanger him. Uh, before we even got to sit down, we were running out. And you think, if, if, if their son turned out to be a criminal as well, would they oppose it with such vehemence? Or would they oppose it so furiously? It is surprising, right? That you expect people to rejoice. But what happens? The opposite happens. Satan's aim is to get new believers to cool their commitment to the Lord, to compromise their commitment to the Lord, right? When your family tells you that we are sacrificing to um, the ancestral spirits and you refuse, it becomes a problem, but God is calling you to commitment amidst the opposition, to commitment and to prioritize your commitment to him to honor him above all. But if anger doesn't stop the work, Satan has another tool. He, he uses mockery and sarcasm. He uses mockery and, and sarcasm. 
Sanballat and his buddies here gather within hearing distance of the wall and ask a bunch of sarcastic questions. When you look at verse 2, they, they said in the presence of the brothers of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up the work in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of their rubbish? And the bent ones at that. What, 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 what Sanballat actually means, he says, do they think they can complete this project and offer sacrifices of thanksgiving? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones of the dusty rubble and even the bent ones? After each rhetorical question, his cronies are probably laughing behind him. Then Tobiah threw in his sarcastic bab. If a fox should jump on this poor excuse of a wall, he would break it down. They are undermining the work by sarcasm and mockery. Satan frequently uses ridicule against those who take a stand for the Lord. If you become a Christian and let it be known, your fellow workers will mock you and, and call you holier than thou. They, 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 they will call you names because you are a Christian. They will be waiting for you to fall into sin so that they can, they can hoot about it. They can, they, they, they can rejoice about it and say, we knew you were no different. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. How many times have you heard that? Your commitment to Christ threatens their godless lifestyle. And when mockery and, 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 and sarcasm doesn't work, Satan throws another weapon. He throws threats and intimidation. If anger and ridicule don't work, the enemy gets more aggressive. And Nehemiah's enemies had to be careful since he was working under Artaxerxes' permission. Remember in chapter 2, right? If you remember as we were, we were going, that Nehemiah went to King Artaxerxes and asked for permission to go to Judah. And, and so they had to be careful because they know that Nehemiah has letters to rebuild. They, they couldn't just rally their troops and, and march into Jerusalem, or they would be charged with rebellion against the king. But what they could do they could use threats of violence. You look at verse 8 and verse 11, which they circulated among the Jews living near them in verse 12. This small band of terrorists could sneak in and pick off a few people working on the wall, and St. Balat would just tell Ataxerxes, it was just a renegade band that didn't have control, I, I didn't have control over. So just, just like we read about militant Muslims today, that the, the threats of terrorism, um, terrorist activity, put the Jews under immense psychological pressure. Satan still uses subtle and overt threats and intimidation to oppose Christians. If you don't keep quiet about the boss's corruption, you will get fired. If you discipline your children as scripture directs, the authorities will take them away from you. If you stand for the faith in a university, 
your professor might even flunk you. So many, many things that are being used by Satan to intimidate and threaten Christians. But you have to stand strong. Now when you stand strong and threats and intimidation don't work, Satan has not given up yet. He uses discouragement and exhaustion. Discouragement and exhaustion. Apparently there was a discouraging proverb that was going around. A word that was traveling among the people. In verse 10, this is what they were saying. They were saying, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. The people were wearing out and piles of rubbish didn't seem to be diminishing. As I was talking about this yesterday, uh, telling my wife the sermon, that it feels like doing the dishes. Right? Men will understand this. Women, you might not understand this. Men will understand this better. You are doing the dishes there and all of a sudden, two more dishes come. And you do those dishes, two more dishes come and you're like, where are all the dishes coming from? Right? They, 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 were, they were taking out the rubble, but there was more rubble. And so there was discouragement. There was exhaustion. They had lost their earlier heart for the work that had resulted in the work rapidly being built to the halfway mark. Satan knows that the halfway point in any work is the most effective time to strike. The same is true in your walk with God. When you first get on fire for the Lord, it's exciting, right? It's exciting. We, we are going to, to win the world for Christ. You, you are burning with zeal and desire for Christ. Every Bible study you go to seems fresh and, and, and challenging. Your, your times in the Word and in prayer are rich with new discoveries. You, you just can't get enough of it. But somewhere down the line, the newness wears off. The zeal wears off. The, the, the fire starts to burn low and low. You begin to notice the piles of rubble in your own life and in the church. You begin to notice your problems and sins just that they, 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 they seem not to go away. You begin to grow weary, or wondering if all your efforts are, are making a difference for the cause of Christ. Your weariness leads you to discouragement, but Satan isn't out of tools. Then he uses fear. Fear. He said fear is, a, is the cumulative effect of all the above factors. That the people had seen the enemy's anger and had heard their mockery and threats. They were wearing down through exhaustion. Then they repeatedly heard gloom and doom from their fellow Jews who lived near the enemy. Nehemiah saw their fear and exhorted them not to be afraid. Satan uses fear to paralyze God's people and to keep them from attempting anything significant for the Lord. 
maybe it is fear of failure that you have. You, you've never done it before. And, and you don't know how to do it. You don't know how to start doing it. Maybe it's a fear of rejection. If you try it, others will think that you are a fanatic, that you are crazy, and stand off from you. I remember um, I, 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 I once did uh, open air preaching. Um, I would wake up in the morning and stand in the corner of a, of a, of a, of a street and I'll start to sing a song about um, if you want to know how I came to Christ, just take your time and listen as I tell you. And so I would, I would, I would um, retell the gospel message in the morning and a lot of people would, would hear but their response was a funny one because they would call me a madman. So I was, I was the madman <laughs> of the community. And when you think about that, that can bring fear in your heart. Wouldn't it? You, you, you don't want to be called names. You, 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 you don't want to be called mad because you stand in the street and... Speak by yourself. I mean, come on. Right? So Satan uses fear to discourage us. It may be fear of conflict. If I mention Jesus here on this dinner table, what are they going to say? How, how are they going to respond? And so you keep quiet. If you do what God wants you to do, you must know, you must know that opposition is bound to come. Opposition is bound to come. These are some of the tactics that Satan uses to oppose God's work and in projects that people undertake in advancing the, the Lord's work and in individual hearts that want to advance spirituality. Spiritually. How would you respond to such opposition? And, and we see this, the answer to that question in the second lesson that we need to bear in mind. The second lesson is that is respond to the enemy's opposition with prayer, work, vigilance, and focus on the Lord. Let me say that again. With prayer, work, vigilance, and focus on the Lord. So we respond to the Lord's uh, to, to the enemy's opposition with prayer, with work, with vigilance, and focus on the Lord. You see, whenever you encounter opposition, you have several options. You can run from it. You can try to dodge it or, or go around it. You can try to work out a compromise. Or, or you can meet it head on and try to work through it. The last approach is usually the only biblical way. Nehemiah's approach can be broken down in four aspects here. They, they lifted up their voice in prayer. They, they put their hearts to the work. They kept their eyes on the enemies in vigilant. And they kept their minds focused on the Lord in faith. First of all, they lifted up their voices in prayer. Often when we face opposition, our, our first response is to get angry and hit back. 
and, and to defend ourselves, right? But our first response should always be prayer. We see that in verses 4 and verse 9. John Bunyan wisely observed that you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more. You cannot do more uh, uh, than pray until you have prayed. You see, prayer reminds us that God is sovereign even over those who are attacking us. He has allowed this trial for a reason. And in prayer, we submit our hearts to him and acknowledge our trust in him. But the question that you're probably asking, if you have followed me as I read this um, chapter, and if you have read this chapter on your own, what about Nehemiah's prayer in verses 4 and 5? It doesn't seem to fit in with love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, as, as Matthew chapter 5 verse 44 exhorts us. Should, should we pray Nehemiah's prayer? Uh, listen to Nehemiah's prayer. He says, Hear, O oh, oh, oh God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Should we pray this prayer? Let me just make a few comments on this. First of all, this is not a prayer for personal vengeance, but rather a prayer that God would act um, as judge to sinners, would judge sinners. Secondly, since these enemies were hindering God's work, it was a prayer that God would judge those who oppose his kingdom and his glory. And thirdly, to, to pray for God's kingdom to be established, as the Lord's prayer calls us to pray, it is implicitly, if, if not explicitly, to pray that all competing kingdoms would be destroyed. When you pray for thy kingdom come, thy, thy kingdom rise, thy, thy kingdom be established, you are praying other kingdoms be destroyed. You see, as Christians, we should pray that God would destroy our enemies by converting them. But if he so chooses, God may also destroy them by pouring out his wrath on them. As he will surely do at the final judgment if they, do not have, if they have not repented of their rebellion against him. You see, we need to be on guard. Um, we need to guard our hearts against any selfish motives and any personal delight in seeing our enemies brought down. But we must also remember that the saints will rejoice when God finally judges the wicked in Revelations 18.20. If our hearts are right, we can pray that God would subdue the enemies of the cross, either by conversion or by his justice. Prayer should be our first response to opposition. Uh, secondly, they put their hearts into the work. Verse 6 literally means the people had a heart to work. Although there was a, a slight pause when while Nehemiah organized the militia, they, they didn't abandon the work to chase down the enemy. They didn't allow the enemy's threat 
to get their focus onto other things. That they just kept building the wall and pretty soon the enemy was outside looking up because the wall was going up. Instead of looking straight across them, over the wall, the wall was continuing because they put their hearts to the work. There are times when it is necessary to, to refute false teachers, right? And defend sound doctrine. In fact, this is one of the tasks of elders, as Titus chapter 1, verse 9 to 16 says. But we should never be distracted by fighting false teachers that we forget our main purpose, which is to proclaim the gospel both here and around the world through missions. We must never forget the work at hand. But not only that, we see that they kept their eyes on the enemy in vigilance. Nehemiah prayed first, but then he set up a guard. Notice, notice that Nehemiah's prayer did not make the enemy go away. Instead, the enemy upped the threats to attack. And this we should know about prayer. Prayer is no magic wand, right? Prayer is no magic wand. Prayer does not mean that you, cannot, you, you can ignore the enemy's threats or pretend that they don't exist. Nehemiah was, if, was vigilant to arm the workers and post guards around the clock. He put in place a warning system so that whenever the trumpet was blown, the workers would quickly rally and defend their families and city. We, we need to be aware even of the devil's attacks. We, 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 we do not relax. Satan does not take time off, right? He, he does not take time off in opposing and attacking Christians, and we need to always be, at, uh, be vigilant against the attacks of the devil. Fourthly, they kept their minds focused on the Lord. Nehemiah reminded them in, uh, in, in verse 14, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. The, the people were discouraged because they had gotten their focus onto the enemy's threats, piles of rubble, and, and the work left to do. Nehemiah rightly directed their focus back to the Lord who is great and awesome and to the things that were at stake if they yielded to the enemy, namely their families. When opposition hits, it's easier to, to get our focus off the Lord and onto our problems. At such times, we must remember what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, saying, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. Right? Let me just conclude by saying this. A historian, uh, Will, Will Durant, observed this uh, about Rome. He says, Rome remained great as long as she had enemies who forced her to unity, vision, and heroism. When she had overcome all her enemies, she flourished for a moment and then began to die. She flourished for a moment and then began to die. If you know Christ and you try to accomplish anything for him, you will experience opposition especially if you are in leadership, if you are serving in any area of the church, you will experience opposition. Respond as Nehemiah did, with prayer, keeping your heart in the work, vigilance against the enemy, and keeping your focus on the great and awesome God whom you serve.
Amen. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can find encouragement in your word. We can be aware of the devil's scheme. That we can be vigilant in our Christian walk. We can put our heart in the work, in serving you, in loving you, in honoring you, in living for you, in living lives to your glory. We can commit ourselves to you in prayer. Father, continue to strengthen us and to be with us, for without you we cannot do anything. May your spirit lead us and direct us. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.